Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. Today on the show, we have Melissa Phoebos, the author of a new collection called Abandon Me, a collection of essays. It's a fantastic collection. It's a memoir essay hybrid, I would say. Melissa was also featured in our quarterly journal. Yes. That's right. In our upcoming quarterly journal, which is dedicated to women writers, we excerpted a novel by Melissa. Oh, she writes novels too. She does indeed. Wow. And so we have an excerpt and we're very, very proud to feature her work and the work of many, many talented women writers. So let's get to that interview. Let's do it. We're here today with Melissa Phoebos. Melissa is the author of two books, Whip Smart, which was a memoir published in 2010 by St. Martin's Press, and most recently, Abandon Me, a collection of essays that was just published by Bloomsbury. Her writing has appeared in publications such as the Kenyan Review, Guernica, Salon, and the New York Times, and she's been the recipient of several fellowships, including those from Breadloaf Writers Conference and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. Currently, she's an assistant professor of creative writing at Monmouth University and MFA faculty at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Thank you, Melissa, for being here today. Thank you for having me here today. We were thinking maybe we could open with you reading from your new book, Abandon Me. I would be very happy to. Do you have any requests? Or should I just pick something? Whatever you think would be best. Okay. Maybe I will just read the beginning of this essay, which is sort of phonics-driven. I sort of built it out of sound more so than the other essays, and maybe I'll just read a few paragraphs. Perfect. Sounds great. Call my name. When I was seven, my sea captain father at sea, my mother a strobing lighthouse of missing, I stood alone in my bedroom, renaming all my toys Melissa, you and you and you, a child's narcissism, maybe, a punishment for my dolls. I didn't choose my name, but I could choose to give it away, a small triumph. But no matter how many dolls I christened Melissa, the sound of my name still shocked me. Hum of M, soft L, hiss ending open-mouthed. Melissa, my teacher called each morning. Here, I flinched. It was a ribbon of sound, a yielding, sibilant thing. Drag it along a scissor blade, and it curls. I wanted a box, something with corners I could feel. Zoe or Katrina, those girls ruled the school bus. You could press your fingers into Melissa. It was hum and ah and s more sigh than spit. On family vacation in Florida, after days pickling in the hotel pool, eyes pinked from its blue brine, my mother asked me, Melissa, why, when the ocean was steps away, why the pool? Because the pool has sides, I told her. I was already spilling out, grasping for edges. And what chance did I stand against the ocean? How many times had the sea taken our captain and left her beating the shore with her hands? Wow. Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. So this book, it's so interesting because it's separate essays, and yet it does follow the arc of I would say mostly of one story, Mm -hmm. which is a love story. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering how it came together and if when you set out to write it, you had the full story in mind or maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the writing process. Sure. That's my favorite topic. I love talking (laughs) about process. (laughs) You know, when I think about these essays, because I do think of them as essays, 
and the way that they came together, I think of it like stars that made up a constellation that I didn't recognize as I was discovering them and only as the shapes started to emerge did I realize that they were a progression or that they made up one or maybe like islands in an archipelago or something. Mm -hmm. I did not have an idea of the full story or even the structure of the individual essays, both sort of as I was writing them and then also as I was starting to conceive of the book. And I thought of the title first, which has never Mm -hmm. happened to me. Titles always feel like the last piece of the puzzle that I sort of slide into place at the very end. And with this, I was in the middle of living it, of living that love affair and making the decision to go find my birth father. And it was this kind of emotional nadir. (laughs) I was like in this crevasse of experience, which was pretty harrowing. And I had this moment in my kitchen in my Brooklyn apartment where I thought, I'm going to write a book about this and it's going to be called Abandon Me. And I wrote the title down on an index card, on a pink index card, and I stuck it to my wall. And for many months after that, I had no other information (laughs) about what that book would consist of other than this meeting of my birth father and this love affair. But I was writing the essays and you know, I think of the book as starting with that essay that I just read an excerpt from where I you know, I didn't even have a conception of the narrative that the essays would take on or that they would go together. I sort of entered into them through language and image and sound and sort of burrowed my way. I felt like a minor or something, like I could Mm. only see what was right in front of me. And it was really just me sitting for months, like whispering words to myself and, you know, being eccentric. (laughs) And then once, you know, the book is comprised of seven shorter essays and then one very, very long essay. And it wasn't until I'd written probably five of the shorter ones that I realized they were all sort of speaking to the same larger story. And I started to think of them as that book that had arrived only entitled to me so long before. Yeah, because they're very associative the form of them. Mm -hmm. You're such a lyrical, poetic writer. And, you know, I think in classic essay form, we think of someone having a very strong thesis Mm -hmm. or kind of arriving Mm -hmm. so far from where you've started. And I think what's interesting about these is that the point is not always that fine by the end, but Mm -hmm. they do kind of circle and there's a lot of movement and your range of where you go in one essay is so amazing. So I was wondering how do you put them together? How do you know where one stops and another one starts? Like, how do you carve out their space? Right. I had to really reinvent my process of essay writing with this book, with these essays. They demanded it. And that method that you alluded to just now of having sort of a thesis and an outline and evidence. And I mean, that sounds like an academic essay, but it is very much the way that I wrote personal essays before I wrote these essays. I'm a very pragmatic sort of circumscribed writer. And I had a very clear process that worked where I had a series of notes that turned into an outline that turned into paragraphs. And I had like specific goals for each draft. It was a method that worked really well for me. But like most kinds of mastery in writing, at least in my experience, as soon as I arrive at them, they become obsolete. (laughs) And so when I started writing these essays, like that name essay began as a paragraph. I thought it would be a paragraph in something larger. And I just sort of teased out 
the sounds of it. And then I needed to write another paragraph. So I wrote another paragraph and it was a very slow sort of carving. And, you know, I thought so much when I was writing them about this quote that I have been thinking about for a decade from Michelangelo. And he's talking about sculpture, but it certainly applies and is analogous, I think, to probably every kind of art making, where he said, I saw the angel in the stone and I carved to set him free. And that's what it felt like writing these essays. Like I glimpsed something and I started chipping away and chipping away. And the more I chipped, the more was revealed. But there was no way for me to hurry the process. And there was no way for me to know where it was going, which was painful because I always like to know where I'm going. I arrive early for everything. (laughs) I keep a very scrupulous calendar. You know, uncertainty is uncomfortable for me as it is for most of us, I think. And this, these essays demanded a lot of uncertainty. And so I had to develop these other methods. So I would sort of write a first draft that way, sort of burrowing into the sounds or the images or the moments. And I would have a draft of some kind. And then I'm a very visual person. Like I I have always had the urge to print out everything I write, even a book length work and sort of hang up all the pages on a clothesline so that I can just look at them all Mm -hmm, at once. mm -hmm. It's so hard to hold something that big in your mind, both sort of physically and metaphysically. And I always want to concretize it in some way. And with this book, because I knew so little about the narrative or how it was going to come together, what larger thing it was a part of, it felt even more urgent for me to materialize it. And so I developed this crazy process where I'd print out the drafts after I had something that looked like a draft and I would cut up the paragraphs. And so I'd have all these little pieces and I would first pile them by theme and then sort of by narrative thread and then by like image theme and just sort of so I could visually look at the proportions of like what it was made of you know and then I would take the parts and I would sort of make a puzzle out of them like a literal jigsaw puzzle where I would arrange them in different orders and in the midst of that process it always felt ridiculous like a total lie (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was like why this is the most elaborate self-indulgent form of procrastination this is just a broken essay it's never going to work but then there would arrive that moment which if you're an artist of any kind you know where it just seems impossible it's like the moment in the movie labyrinth where Jennifer Connelly thinks that she's just in a long haul have you guys seen that movie it's been a while. But I haven't. There's an essay really in the book about it that there will refresh is. your I know, memory. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I, yeah. I read that. Yeah. But so she thinks she's in this just long, never-ending corridor, and then she just has to ch- shift her perspective a little bit, and she realizes there's these openings everywhere, and it's this very elaborate labyrinth. Anyway, it was like that, and it would just sort of click, and I would see what needed to happen, and I would arrange the little pieces and tape them together on this foam board and then insert these little post-its for the things I needed to insert, and I would hang that on the wall. It was very, like, a beautiful That's so mind. interesting. So it's almost a collage. Yeah. Of your, but of your own, yeah, it was a, your own work. Yeah, it was a collage, and I was sort of emptying my brain or my impulse or my inspiration or whatever, and then figuring out what it was and then I would re put it back into the computer and rearrange it I once Mm. made a mobile of like the book of hours I just needed it to be 3d for that one wow yeah and do you this is rare I assume that you don't usually your other work and your other book was not written in this sort of visual tactile way no I mean I always have been a very visual learner and thinker I need to I think best it's 
part of why I'm a writer, because I just think an ever-tightening little spiral in my own mind very repetitively. So I need to write things out. I need to make outlines or draw maps, but nothing like this was a whole new level. Interesting. Sort of makes sense in that it seems like a book that is really about Melissa mm-hmm. coming into being, right, and, yeah. and emerging out of that stone. Exactly, and it's about where all of these threads that for much of my life I was both, I believed and was also committed to believing that they were disparate and that they didn't fit together. And so in many ways the book was a process, writing it and assembling it was a process of drawing those together and finding mm-hmm. the places they intersected and the ways they talked to each other. And it wasn't always a linear shape, you know, so I had to figure that out both in terms of the structure of the book, but also in the meaning that I was making in the book. Can you talk a little bit about the personal circumstances that put this project into motion? You said Mm -hmm. it was a real emotional nadir for you. And what were the circumstances for for listeners who have not read the book? Right. So at 32, after a lifetime of consecutive monogamous relationships in which I was always the breaker upper, I entered into this affair. It began as an affair with this woman who was married and lived on the other side of the country. And within the same 24-hour period, I reached out to a half-sister whom I'd never met, who I knew existed. And I think of sort of the twinning of those moments as the beginning of this book and, you know, the experiences that it details, which were gestating maybe for my whole life up until then. But so I entered into this very harrowing, intense love affair that was like none I'd ever experienced and which led me to finding and meeting my birth father for the first time and a series of revelations about what that meant and sort of who I was and how I had structured my life around avoiding certain kinds of experiences. And then it was, I sort of felt like my hand was called, you know, like, okay, mm-hmm. it's time. You don't get to be in control this time, <laughs> you know? That's scary. Yeah, so it was a lot of obsession and pining and all of the rest of my life sort of collapsed into this one experience and then was changed on the other side of it. And do you feel like you've come to the other side of it now that the book is yes published? <laughs> <laughs> I do. You know, I think for me, writing is... My process of writing is pretty inextricable from my process of changing and my process of extracting meaning from my experiences, you know? It's really this external mill for my own experience and how I perform some kind of alchemy on it that makes it useful and not just a series of bad decisions. (laughs) So I sort of lived it. And, you know, I think part of that, like, when that title arrived to me, I think that that was a function of my own sort of survival mechanism and my own understanding that writing was the way that I made use of experiences that were incredibly painful. You know, I was like, that's, I'm going to have to do that here. (laughs) You know, I was like, okay. And I think I might have needed a token of that to remind me that it would end and that I would be able to do something useful with it that might even be useful to other people. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We're 
are so lucky today to have Naima J. Keith back in the studio. Naima is the deputy director of the California African American Museum, and she's here with a book recommendation. Yes. When you got asked the question, I thought to myself, okay, do I want to bring in a recommendation that's professional or personal? And as you could imagine, I have to read a lot, obviously, professionally. But I really thought about the books that have stuck with me, particularly at this time in my life. And so the book recommendation I have actually is Issa Rae's Adventures of Awkward Black Girl. Hmm. And so I know it's not a recent book. It came out in 2015. But with the web series and then the book and then the series that's on TV, I feel like it's one of those books that people should, if they haven't gotten already, they should go out and pick it up. But I feel like Issa Rae, I think, does a great job of not only just talking about, I don't want to say coming of age, but just being a woman, right? And kind of discovering love, the workplace, and navigating all these different aspects of your life that it just felt like when I read the book and then watching the show more recently, I laugh because I have gone through all those scenarios um, Mm. because I find myself navigating awkward and random moments of all time, every single (laughs) moment. Um, Uh I'm a new mom. My daughter's 18 months old, and my husband and I have been married for two years, but we've known each other since middle school. Oh, wow. And so we've been friends for a very long time. But navigating being a wife and a mom and a career woman and all of these things, I have awkward adventures every single day. Uh-huh. Um, and so I wanted to highlight that book because Issa Rae is a, a phenomenal and smart and witty woman. It's Women's History Month. And so I wanted to celebrate that as well. But also because, again, it's a book that I feel like resonates with what I'm thinking about right now. As I'm navigating, again, love and friendships and work and how to balance all these things or not, I found that it's a humorous take on quite serious subjects. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I love it, the book. Is it a memoir? It's a collection of essays okay. um, that is written in her voice. Okay. Um, and so you're seeing her kind of navigating all these different scenarios. Again, even if you haven't had to deal with the exact same love relationship, we've all had that weird boyfriend and that one that got away or that guy you had a crush on that you kind of think, what if? Or, you know, I just think that it's a humorous book that I hope that people will run out and pick up. Mm -hmm. And then with the TV show that's on now, it's a true celebration of Los Angeles. Oh, It uh, highlights different areas of Los Angeles, Baldwin Hills, View Park, Lamert Park, that... I don't think a lot of people really know about. And I grew up in those areas. And so to see a TV show celebrating different areas of Los Angeles that I know and I love is just amazing. That's great. So remind us of the name of the book one more time. So it's Issa Rae, Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. Thank you so much for coming back, Naima. Thank you so much. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Melissa Phoebos, author of Abandon Me. An influence I saw very strongly was fairy tales and folk mm-hmm. tales. And especially in your description of your father, the captain, mm-hmm. or your adoptive father. Mm-hmm. But I like that you say in the book that children's stories force logic upon the gruesome facts of our lives. They mirror our troubles and submit them to a chain of casualty. It's an interesting balance to strike because it's a very personal story, but you're able through the style yeah. to make it almost universal and to kind of alleviate some of the heaviness in yeah. it as well. So I wonder, do you now read fairy tales and folk tales or what role do they play for you? You know, it's so funny, the obvious things that other people can point out about your work. And I sort of knew this, like I'm pointing to it the whole time in the book. But that line that you just read is a very accurate description of 
what I think my writing does for me. You know, it takes the gruesome facts of my life and submits them to a chain of causality, which is narrative structure and plot and makes sense of things that can seem incomprehensible mm-hmm. as they're happening. Of course, yeah. Right? And it does that for me, sort of inside of me. It does that for, I hope, people who read it, but it also does that within my family structure, within my relationships, you know? It sort of forces a narrative and a conversation that otherwise might just be lost and remembered as a painful thing that happened, you know? So I don't read a lot of fairy tales and folk tales just generally, but I've been asked about this a few times because there's a lot of other texts that sort of insinuate their way into a very personal story otherwise in this book. And almost all of those texts or those other voices that come into it were texts and voices that I've been talking to for a very long time. I'm not sure there's anything in here that I encountered as research for the book. I see. Mm -hmm. You know, it really felt like... I want to say dredging, but it's not dredging. That's terrible. (laughs) Like I was moving through my own experience, trying to make sense of it, and in this very sort of organic way, went to the texts that helped me answer questions and make sense of the gruesome facts of human life in my childhood and throughout my entire life. And then I just let them in to my work because that was part of the book. And I think this is a fundamental characteristic of essays, they are an attempt to make sense of something, right? They're the essay. I was like trying to figure something out, right, you know? Right, and the way yeah. that I have always tried to figure things out is to go to other thinkers and other writers and psychology and fairy tales. And story is how I've made sense of so many things that felt incomprehensible in the living. And this experience was certainly one of those, you know? So I think fairy tales and folk tales and, you know, we didn't watch television when I was a kid. We right. just read a lot of books. And so that just felt, you know, sort of I went home to the stories that helped me make yeah. sense of things. And even sort of the systems of images and places and memories that were my earliest yeah. sense-making You things. definitely reveal, I think, I don't want to say a, a childlike part of yourself, but the consciousness of being a child is so, mm-hmm. and I think that's another amazing part of these essays is that there's not so much a hierarchy of persona that mm-hmm. it's like you can be a child and then mm-hmm. you're having a very steamy, um, yeah, sex there's, scene there's, there's <laughs> right like after. childhood memories yeah. juxtaposed right next to a lot of lesbians. Well, <laughs> I did notice, yeah, that. As my mother said to me after she read it, and we had a very, very intimate conversation, she was like, there's a lot of sex in the book. I was like, yep. There is. <laughs> there is. That's true. It's hot. It's well done. Yeah. 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 I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, I think, I mean, I guess when she said that, it was funny because I don't think of it as a, I hadn't thought of it objectively that way. I mean, I knew mm-hmm. that that was true, but at the same time, like, you know, and I think this is mostly a gift. Like, as I'm writing things, I don't think a lot objectively about what it is going to look like. Mm-hmm which Mm -hmm. I'm really glad, you know, I'm not exempt from caring what other people think. I think maybe my detachment from that is a protective mechanism because I care so much what people think that if I think about it while I'm writing, it will alter what I'm, yeah, it will paralyze me. It will totally influence what I'm doing. So I just have to completely shut it out. And so it's always a little surprising when people are like, there's a lot of sex in this book, or this is really fucking personal. I'm like, is yeah. it? Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. Well, but it, it makes sense, too, because there's a lot of sex, but our sexual relationships, our romantic relationships are always inextricably linked with the kind of relationships we have. Right, of course. Right, as, as we're growing up, as we're growing older. and It um, seems so obvious, right? And yet we have so much conditioning from outside of ourselves that sex is separate from other things, and of course it's not. And I think particularly in a relationship like this, which when you're in it, 
feels so incredibly unique and yet mm-hmm. <laughs> and by a relationship like this i mean that sort of like insane obsessive addictive relationship that all your friends know is a bad idea Mm. very long before you're willing to face it. And, you know, I remember when I started this relationship, and I've laughed with friends about this who have shared this sort of trajectory. Like early on, I remember saying to a friend, like, this is so painful and awful in many ways, but the sex is so insanely good, like it might be worth it. (laughs) And then by the end of it, I said to the same friend, if I never have sex that good again, I'll be fine with that because it's totally not worth it. And in Mm -hmm. fact, now I think I understand the link between that kind of insane obsession and hunger and relentless desire that is not a mark of true love. It's a mark of like deep emotional redemption wish or, you know, it's like tapping into your oldest, most pathological shit. Right, yeah. And it also seemed to pair with your, and you talk about this a lot in the book, but the desire to be consumed, Mm -hmm. right, paired with the fear of abandonment. Yeah, exactly. It's like this. Those two are, I was reading a book recently about Hansel and Gretel being Mm -hmm. a story of the two primal fears, Mm -hmm. fear of being consumed in fear of abandonment. Uh, so this feels very much sort of in that vein, right, where yeah. you have these two fears and you lead your life. In this book, it was essentially saying that you lead your life according to one or the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, but here you very much deal with both. Yeah, and, yeah, I do. Yeah. You just made me have so many thoughts that they started bottlenecking. But the, the first of which was that Hansel and Gretel was, I think I mentioned it you do. in one yeah. of the yeah. essays, that that was like one of my favorites. And my mother, I had the little golden books, you know. My mother, a super feminist, corrected my children's books with a Sharpie. So Gretel was the director of that whole adventure. Good for Gretel. Yeah. I know, good, good for <laughs> Gretel. Or, yeah, <laughs> I know. So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of the Gretel of my own book. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, you know, the sort of alignment of the childhood stuff and the sex stuff also makes sense to me because that kind of desire and that fear of abandonment, that fear of consumption, that wish for consumption, that wish for self-abandonment or instinct for self-abandonment is so childhood. Mm -hmm. It comes straight out of child, you know, like the two poles of that tension are in, you know, it's like that crazy, obsessive, craving, sex, desire place. And then like it comes straight out of your childhood, right? Because one can only really be abandoned or consumed as a child like that it can't it's always an illusion you know right, like you can, right. an adult yeah. cannot actually be abandoned because we are not dependent on other humans yeah. to survive the way that children are and yet right. i think depending on the degree or quality of our you know earliest woundings it can really feel that way as an adult and that's what like every pop song on the radio is singing to there's a lot of psychology or reference to psychoanalytic texts in this book and Winnicott is a mm-hmm. epigraph and young. So I wondered, do you read a lot of psychology? I do read a lot of psychology and I always have. My mother is a psychotherapist and you know, she became a psychotherapist sort of in my pre-adolescence, which was a very fertile time in my own thinking and self-conception and so we had all of these psychology books around our house and I read them all and had this sort of enormous emotional vocabulary as a very young person which 
was great in some ways and also really difficult in other ways because it is hard to have sort of a disparity between your intellectual understanding and your experiential understanding. I think everybody Mm -hmm. tangles with that. It is one of the great challenges. It is like the problem I'm always trying to solve, like how what I know and what I do Mm. do not always match up. (laughs) They're on a very serious leg. I mean, I can remember that as a child being like, I understand feminism, but... I hate my body. Like, how can that be? You know, and I would right. like to read all the Ms. magazines in our house and be like, ugh. <laughs> but yeah, and I think there's a way that I felt, and I don't think I'm alone in this either. I felt so alone in my consciousness as a very young person. And I think that this is, maybe everyone feels this way, but I particularly think like smart, weird, creative possibly like addict leaning children especially (laughs) feel this way and I just didn't know if other people's interior world was like mine and I had a great hunger to know that I wanted companionship in my interior reality and one of the first places or maybe the first place that I found that was in books and novels but also in psychology I saw in psychology texts the things that I experienced named by people who I didn't know who were maybe dead. And it was so comforting to me. The same way that when I first learned of like the Four Noble Truths and that like the first fact of Buddhism was that life is suffering. I was like, oh, thank God. Like, like, oh, it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so reading about the way the mind works and people who studied it and particularly sort of Young and Winnicott I was like, oh, good. Like, people have not only already felt this way, but they have felt this way enough that other people have studied it and written books about it, right? right? So at least in some abstract way, I have companionships, which is why I've sort of carried certain writers and certain books with me all this time. I was also really interested in the... Imago theory of relationships mm-hmm. that you referenced quite a number of times in mm-hmm. this um, in your essay. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So the Imago theory, I'm going to recommend a book here. Okay, and it's, great. it's like a self-help book, but really it's kind of a psychological theory book, but it's a relationship theory book, but it's one of my favorite books. And it also has this amazing like 70s cover and the author photo is so good, but it's called Getting the Love You Want <laughs> by Harville Hendricks. Anyway, it's all about the Imago theory, which basically postulates that our psyches create sort of a blueprint in our earliest woundings or sort of attachment traumas as children. So like, for instance, your father being a sea captain and always leaving or the death of a parent or a kind of physical abuse or there's a very broad spectrum that those initial primal woundings create a blueprint in our minds and sort of a wish for redemption in the form of sort of a replaying of that narrative that will get us a different ending. So it's sort of an explanation or a paradigm that defines the way that we're always dating our mothers and fathers (laughs) and that we're always dating the same kinds of people. And I love it for a lot of reasons. It makes sense to me. It's a very simple sort of breakdown. It also, I feel like it's in conversation with some of the psychologists that I like most and But it also reframes this way of thinking about the choices we make in relationships 
in a really generous way that has been helpful to me in a lot of areas of my life. So the idea that we're choosing people who are bad for us or who cheat on us or like it's sort of framed as this like either we're a victim and other people are bad and victimizing us and we just have bad luck, which seems the most absurd explanation, or we're self-destructive when we hate ourselves. And so we keep choosing people that mirror back our poor self-conception. And and the Imago theory says that we don't necessarily hate ourselves. We are not necessarily a victim of other people, but we have, it is an instinct to heal ourselves, right? It can take a long time to succeed and sometimes it doesn't succeed, but that softens the meaning of it, you know, and makes room for a development within it, right? So the goal is not to suddenly become attracted to someone who's not our type, because I have a very, very clear type. I'm probably never going to be attracted to like a blonde, cheerful person. It's just not going to happen. And... But I'm not trying to be attracted to a blonde, cheerful person who's mm-hmm. never been to therapy. I'm interested in finding like a dark, brooding, funny, incredibly intelligent, like person with a lot of repressed anger who <laughs> is willing to work with me to create a different ending to each of our narratives. And right. I think that people mm-hmm. match up. When you find your imago, it's like that person that clicks into all of your shit. And that means like you want to drink their spit, but it also means that they come with built-in parts that are going to trigger your parts, right? And if they're a person who has self-awareness and some distance between their instincts, who has some agency over their behavior, then you can like stop when that happens and collaborate with them to not just do the instinctual thing and try to grow through it, Mm -hmm. right? So all of that applies in a pretty obvious way, I think, to the relationship that I write about in here. It was definitely an Imago situation. I definitely was working out some very old stuff. And I also think it's important that it's not one of the messages of the book is that, like, the happy ending is not contingent on a relationship working out or any material outcome that even though we might be attached to certain material outcomes, like our own healing or resolution or freedom or growth is not about a particular material outcome. Yeah. That's a very nice thought, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's freeing. Yeah. It's it leaves freeing. room, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I was texting with a friend last night, like, as I was sort of falling asleep, and we were, like, joking about dating and relationships, and I was like, I'm totally in love, because I am in love right now. And he was like, well, what do you think? How do you feel about it? And I was like, I feel totally insanely hopeful, because I have a relentless optimism, even though it's never worked out. And he was like, what do you mean never worked out? Like, what is worked out in a relationship? And I was like... That's a really good question because I think for a long time having it work out meant lasting forever. Like that's such a ridiculous like juvenile idea. And I was like, I'm working on revising this. And I said, and it was half joke, half true. I was Mm -hmm. like, maybe I should redefine working out to mean a two to three year relationship with lots of sex and personal growth, a somewhat messy breakup and a new book at the end of it. (laughs) If that's the definition of working out, like I'm an all-star. Okay, yeah. I mean, that seems like, especially the book at the end of it, feels like a real surprise. (laughs) I'm doing okay if that's, I mean, I'm joking, but I also do think it's, important to sort of reframe what success is and just to interrogate the ideas of what we think of as a successful relationship or being a successful person or what like being self-destructive or what healing is because the definitions that we go to by default are not always of our own making they were often given to us by sources that we don't trust like the media 
or like the makeup industry. You know what I mean? Like I don't. So in many ways, this book is about sort of interrogating those narratives that I fall back on and being like, wait a minute, where did I get this? And do I still believe in it? And Mm -hmm. if not, then what's a new model that I can come up with? I don't think I was a drug addict because I hate myself or because I wanted to destroy myself. I think it was a perhaps misguided impulse to self-soothe or modulate my own feelings. And I think even the relationship with all your family in the book and by the end with your birth father seems complicated. Who's to say how much it worked out, but it's it's the fact that you were brave enough to venture into, into it and see what was there. Probably the most quoted thing about writing that I share with my students is this Chekhov quote, the job of the writer is not to solve the problem, but to state the problem correctly. And I think it applies to writing. And it also applies to life. Like we're not trying to solve the problem. We're just trying to like, see the whole thing and acknowledge it in some way. And some of that has to do with accepting how things end or don't end, but also the way that you move into them. Like two of the lessons that I got out of these experiences was that it is incredibly useful to walk towards an experience or an impulse and just be curious. You know, like when I went to find my birth father, I wasn't looking for a father. I already had a father and plenty of issues with him that I was working out, you know, but I was curious. I had like an instinct. I was hungry for something and I didn't know what it was. And rather than fixating on an object, I just went into the experience and thought like, what's here? which is very harder to do than to say, but it has borne a lot of rewards for me. Melissa, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you thank so, you so much. much for having me. Such a pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you guys forever. We can do it, just off air. <laughs> You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 